Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, Daniel chapters 8 and 9. Now we're going to conclude Daniel chapter 8 today and get started on chapter 9. Chapter 8 of Daniel is acknowledged among Bible scholars as one of the most difficult in the Bible. However, don't think chapter 9 is going to be a piece of cake. Chapter 9 introduces a whole new element to end times prophecy, a timeline called the 70 weeks of Daniel. And if only it were clearly spelled out and straightforward, but it's not. Now, as I mentioned last time, we are studying the Bible, not prophecy. There's a difference. We are taking prophetic passages in their biblical context, neither adding nor subtracting, and interpreting them within the framework of the chapters they're written. What most believers are used to hearing about the book of Daniel is the teaching of prophecy as a separate topic. And the prophetic passages are removed from their context and their historical setting and they're kind of set apart as a standalone unit. So for most Western Christians, what you think you know about Daniel and the book of Revelation for that matter is based mostly on books written by prophecy teachers and they consist of verses lifted out of their context, arranged in an order that the author thinks they ought to go, and then copious amounts of personal speculation are mixed in based on doctrines and opinions. Now we've all seen those Hollywood movies that begin with some on-screen text that says, this film is based on a true story. Now the movie maker's hope is that what you'll actually think is this film is a true story. However, just because there is a a kernel of a real event that the director has, has built upon to create his movie doesn't mean that what's depicted on the screen actually happened. The goal of the film is to entertain to put forth the director's worldview. That's how we need to approach what we hear from popular prophecy teachers and what we read in their literature. And when we left off last time, we had just discussed Daniel 8, 13 and 14. Now recall that chapter 8 is Daniel's second vision. He had his first vision in chapter 7. So we now have had three visions presented to us in the book of Daniel. The vision given to King, uh, the Gentile King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and now two visions given to Daniel the Jew. There's another one yet to come. And we find that in Daniel 8 verses 13 and 14, there are two spiritual beings called holy ones, Echad Kadosh, who are speaking to one another. And the question is asked, how long will the events of this vision last? 
And specifically the question refers to how long of a time that the little horn of the male goat, the little horn symbolizes a tyrant, and the male goat symbolizes Greece, so the, 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 the tyrant of Greece, how long will he cause the morning and evening temple offerings to be suspended? And the answer that is given is 2300 evenings and mornings. The most usual interpretation of 2300 evenings and mornings is that it means 2300 days. And that is because in Genesis 1, it says this. In verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there was evening, there was morning, one day. However, the definition of 2300 evenings and mornings ought not to be based on the creation story. Rather, the question is specifically concerning the evening and the morning offerings that the little horn has ordered a halt to. And the answer to how long is 2300 evenings and mornings. So my opinion is that the 2300 refers to the number of sacrifices that will be missed. And since there are two sacrifices per day, then we can extrapolate that the number of days that it goes on for is 1150. Two sacrifices per day times 1150 days, 2300 evening and morning sacrifices. And indeed, in the mid-2nd century BC, a Greek tyrant named Antiochus Epiphanes ordered a halt to the temple sacrifices. I think this would be an appropriate time to spend just a short time speaking about the infamous Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was the son of King Antiochus III. But he became a political hostage of the Romans in 188 BC. Epiphanes had an older brother named Seleucus IV. And Seleucus was the heir to their father's throne. When Antiochus III died, his eldest son Seleucus properly assumed the throne. But in a very strange, unlikely series of events, Seleucus made a deal with the Romans. A nephew named Demetrius would be exchanged for Epiphanes. Demetrius became the political hostage. Epiphanes was set free. And soon afterward, King Seleucus was assassinated. And his murderer assumed the throne for a brief time. And in turn, Epiphanes was able to gain support, and so he ousted this illegitimate king. So in 175 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes became the new king over the district of the Greek Empire that now included the Holy Lands, recently acquired from the district controlled by a fellow named Ptolemy. This was a fulfillment of prophecy. Because in Daniel 8.9, we read this. Out of one of them, out of one of the four horns on the goat, came a little horn, which grew extremely big in the directions of the south and the east and in the direction of the glory. And indeed, Epiphanes was that little horn of Daniel chapter 8. He was a Greek and he was a prisoner of Rome 
before they became an empire. And he had little to no political influence. That his father willingly handed his son Epiphanes over to the Romans as a political hostage when there were other more distant relatives that probably would have been suitable demonstrates his lowly status in his father's eyes. But in what had to be a God-orchestrated series of events, after his father's death, Epiphanes was freed as part of a prisoner exchange for someone else. And in a very short period of time, three successive kings of the district of Greece that his father ruled over died. Now remember, after the death of Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire was divided into four districts, each of them ruled by a king. Now, however impossible it might have, have seemed, only months earlier, Epiphanes found himself the king of that district, from the outhouse to the penthouse, almost overnight. And he knew exactly what to do with that newfound power because he was a bitter, ruthless, cunning, and ambitious man who intended to make up for lost time after being for years cast aside by his father and offered up as a political hostage to Rome. Well, Epiphanes would rule from 175 to 164 B.C. And he had an overwhelming hatred of the Jews. He believed he was doing mankind a favor by ridding the world of the Jewish religion. A first century B.C. Greek historian named Diodorus Siculus wrote this about the Greek and Roman viewpoint of what Antiochus Epiphanes did to the Jewish people. And I quote, Since Epiphanes was shocked by such hatred directed against all mankind, he set himself to break down the Jews' traditional practices. And to show that this Gentile attitude towards the Jews prevailed interminably, and to rid the world of the Jewish ways, if not the Jews themselves, was seen by the Gentiles as a most praiseworthy endeavor, we hear from the Roman senator and historian Cornelius Tacitus that, and I quote, King Antiochus Epiphanes endeavored to abolish Jewish superstition and instead to introduce Greek civilization. This introduction of Greek civilization was later given the scholarly name of Hellenization. So Jewish belief and observance of the commandments of the God of Israel had to the modern Greek and Roman world come to be viewed as hatred towards mankind and a superstition that needed to be abolished. Why? because the Jewish religion didn't tolerate worship of other gods. It didn't accept the Gentile pagan ways. That anti-Jewish mindset has continued ever since in the Gentile world, even within large segments of Christianity. But now in the 21st century, the tables are being turned. Now, the secular humanist world order 
that's dominant throughout the Western industrial world, a world order that seeks tolerance for all things, acceptance for all religions and all gods, is turning on Christianity, declaring it to be dangerous because it represents a hatred towards mankind. And it's a superstition. It needs to be abolished because we don't accept the gods of other religions nor their holy books. At least we haven't until until rather recently. What goes around comes around, doesn't it? The thing is, Epiphanes wasn't the creator of the Greeks' hatred towards the Jews. He merely used the existing hatred of the times and he drove it to new heights. That was in order to further his career, further his agenda. And today, modern politicians and international leaders, they haven't created the hatred towards Christians and Jews. They're merely chiming in. They're driving it to new heights so that they can use it to further their careers and bring about their Enlightenment era secular agendas and their quest for power. So the pattern of a politically correct, a a culturally accepted norm of anti-Semitism and anti-Bible can be positively traced to Daniel's little horn of chapter 8 who proved to be Antiochus Epiphanes. And of course we find the Epiphanes-like Adolf Hitler in World War II merely continuing this worldwide socially accepted belief that the Jews represented hatred towards mankind. So their beliefs were a superstition to be abolished. It's no wonder that the bulk of the Christian world has, even prior, by the way, to the establishment of the Roman Church by Constantine, determined that God's covenant of law with Moses is to be eradicated. And so all holy biblical observances directly ordained by God, such as the Sabbath, such as the biblical festivals, they're to be declared null and void. Because within the New Testament church, these are now considered as mere remnants of Jewish superstitions. Well, in 169 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes plundered the temple in Jerusalem. In 167 BC, he ordered an end to the morning and the evening temple altar sacrifices. Although truth be told, the sacrifices had been neglected by the Jewish priesthood starting a few years earlier because the high priest Jason sought to conform Judaism to Greek culture, to Greek religion. Shortly after plundering the temple, Epiphanes had a statue of himself represented by the Greek god Zeus erected in the temple. A pig was sacrificed to consecrate it into service. The Jews were now ordered to give up their observances and their practices and to adopt the Greek religion under the threat of execution. This set off a rebellion of the Jews. It was led by Judas the Maccabee. 
and by 164 BC Judas had retaken the temple from Epiphany's army, cleansed it, and reinstituted the morning and evening sacrifices. While the dates recorded from exactly when Epiphany's ordered the sacrifices ended to when the temple was recaptured and cleansed by the Jewish rebels are hard to pinpoint to the precise day, the length of time falls well within the prophesied time of 1150 days during which 2300 evening and morning sacrifices were missed. A tradition is that when it came time to relight that temple menorah, only one jar of consecrated oil could be found. But it took a jar per day just to fuel the temple menorah. However, in a miracle from God, that single jar of oil kept the menorah burning for eight days. And to commemorate the rededication of the temple to God, and and to remember that miracle, a holiday was created called Hanukkah. And it's celebrated on Kislev 25th. This is not to be confused with December 25th on the Roman calendar that eventually was chosen to celebrate a Christian-related holiday to remember the birth of Jesus. Kislev 25th can occur anywhere between the end of November and the last part of December according to modern Roman-based calendars. And as part of the commemoration of Hanukkah, And to remember the miracle of the single jar of oil fueling that temple menorah for eight days, a special eight branch, or more technically nine branch, menorah was created called the Hanukkia. And while we'll find mention of the holiday of Hanukkah in the New Testament, the reason for the day is not explained. And while we'll find the circumstances of the capture and rededication of the temple in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, books that are included in the Catholic Bible, also in some Orthodox Christian Bibles, but not not in the Protestant Bible, we won't find mention of the miracle of the oil. It's in the Talmud. In the Gemara, Tractate Shabbat which we find the story of the jar of oil that allowed the temple menorah to burn for eight days. There can be no reasonable doubt that Antiochus Epiphanes is the little horn of the goat symbol in Daniel chapter 8. But some theologians will say that Epiphanes is also the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. I say the two little horns can't be the same person because the goat of Daniel chapter 8 is directly identified as the symbol for the third Gentile world empire that is Greece. While the beast with the ten horns of Daniel chapter 7 and then the little horn that sprouts up later is directly identified as being of the fourth Gentile world empire which turned out to be Rome. Thus what we have is that the little horn of chapter 8 the Greek little horn is positively identified as Antiochus Epiphanes. And as terrible, as bloodthirsty, as full of hatred as he was towards the Jews, there's going to be a second little horn in the future who will make Epiphanes look like an amateur. So the first little horn, Epiphanes, is a type and a shadow. He sets a pattern 
for the second little horn who will be what the church calls the Antichrist of the end times. The appearance of the second little horn of Daniel 7 is still ahead of us in our year 2013. But how far ahead, we don't know. I doubt it can be very far though. Since the prophecy of Israel returning as a nation of Jews has occurred. Since Jerusalem has been retaken by Israel as their capital city. So the next prophetic event on the calendar is probably the rebuilding of the temple. Which sets off a whole series of events. Including the revealing of that second little horn. The Antichrist who leads an all out attempted genocide of the Jewish people and eradication of Christians. And then a near destruction of all life on earth. Let's move on by rereading Daniel 8 starting at verse 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that will be page 1111. Daniel chapter 8, beginning at verse 15. After I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was trying to understand it, suddenly there stood in front of me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from between the banks of the Ulai, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. He came up to where I was standing and his approach so terrified me I fell on my face. But he said to me, human being, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. And as he was speaking with me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face towards the ground, but he touched me and set me on my feet and said, I am going to explain to you what will happen at the end of the period of fury, because the vision has to do with the time of the end. You saw a ram with two horns, which are the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat is the king of Greece. And the prominent horn between its eyes is the first king. As for the horn that broke and the four which rose up in its place, four kingdoms will arise out of this nation, but not with the power the first king had. In the latter part of their reign, when the evildoers have become as evil as possible, there will arise an arrogant king skilled in intrigue. His power will be great, not with the power the first king had. He will be amazingly destructive. He'll succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty and the holy ones. He will succeed through craftiness and deceit, become swelled with pride, destroy many people just when they feel the most secure. He will even challenge the prince of princes. But without human intervention, he'll be broken. The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true. But you are to keep the vision secret because it's about days in the distant future. I, Daniel, grew weak. I was ill for some days. Then I got up and took care of the king's affairs, but I was appalled at the vision and I still couldn't understand it. Verse 15 begins with the interpretation of Daniel's vision by the angel Gabriel. And this is definitely an end times vision because Gabriel directly said so. So let's be clear. 
while there are two separate Akarit Hayamims, two separate latter days spoken of in the in Bible prophecy, there's only one in times. I know this could be a little bit confusing, but this is central to properly interpreting prophecy. The first latter days concerned the days leading up to and during the first coming of Christ. The second latter days concerns the um, the future leading up to and during Messiah's second appearance, his return. But the end times only refers to things that happen in relation to the second latter days. There is no end times in relation to the first latter days when Yeshua was born. Because it wasn't the end. The end times is speaking of the end of the history of mankind. Now, let me address one theological issue here regarding who it was that ordered Gabriel to explain the vision to Daniel. Many theologians, including Calvin, say it must be Christ. After all, he's the Word and he's the only one of the Trinity that can theoretically have a physical voice. But I think that's an unreasonable stretch. First, there's no hint in these passages to say whose voice instructed Gabriel. And second, the only reason Calvin and others say it is Christ is because it's required in order to fit their predetermined version of the Trinity doctrine. Nothing else. I don't know who it was that ordered Gabriel to tell Daniel the meaning of his vision because we're not told. So let's leave it at that. Now Daniel's filled with terror at the sight of Gabriel. And even though Gabriel is said to be like a man in appearance, it's pretty evident that Gabriel's angelic attributes and radiant glory could not be muted and it shook Daniel to his core. Verse 19 assigns the end time to the period of time labeled also as God's fury. Some theologians say that this occurred during the time of Epiphanies. The meaning of God's fury or indignation, depending on your English translation, means the displeasure and the wrath of Yehovah. So to put together the terms in times and wrath or fury of God, there's really only one place in the Bible that it fits without twisting the passages all up. And that is when in Revelation we hear of God's wrath being poured out the world over as the end of days draws near. So it is simply not intellectually honest to claim, as some do, that the end times when God's wrath was poured out has already occurred and that it happened during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. Once again, this dubious claim is only made to support a predetermined doctrinal agenda that must have it that way or all their doctrines concerning the kingdom of God fall apart. The next several verses are very helpful in that they give the interpretation of earlier verses when Daniel describes his vision. Verses 20, uh, 20, 21, and 22, for instance, explain verses 3 through 8. So, let's go back and take a look at those. Let's reread. 
Daniel 8, 3-8. There it says, I looked up and as I watched, there in front of the stream stood a ram with two horns and the horns were long, but one was longer than the other and the longer one came up later than the other. I saw the ram pushing to the west, north, and south and no animals could stand up against it nor was there anyone that could rescue from its power. So it did as it pleased and it became very strong. I was beginning to understand when a male goat came from the west passing over the whole earth without touching the ground. The goat had a prominent horn between its eyes. It approached the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing in front of the river and it charged it with savage force. I watched as it advanced on the ram filled with rage against it and it struck the ram breaking its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. It threw the ram to the ground and trampled it down and there was no one who could rescue it from the goat's power. The male goat then became extremely strong, but when it was strong, the big horn was broken, and in its place arose what appeared to be four horns in the directions of the four winds of heaven. Okay, this is what Daniel says he saw. Now, here's what Gabriel says those verses meant. That's in chapter 8, verses 20, 21, and 22. You saw a ram with two horns. They are the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat, he's the king of Greece. And the prominent horn between its eyes is its first king. And as for the horn that broke, and then the four that rose up in its place, four kingdoms will arise out of this nation, but not with the power the first king had. So, there we have it. It's explained. Gabriel tells Daniel, that the ram with the horns, one of them longer than the other one, is Media and Persia. And that the male goat with the one big horn that became four horns, that's Greece. We don't have to guess. We don't have to extrapolate. We don't have to speculate. It's said straight out. But the modern critical school of Bible commentators said, Aha! Here is proof positive that Daniel's a complete fraud. Why is that? Because they say if Daniel were writing this in the last part of the 6th century BC, which is when he and the Jews were living in Babylon, there's no human, there's no rational way he could have known that Media Persia was the next Gentile world empire, nor especially that Greece would become a conquering force to overcome Media Persia, because that wouldn't even happen for two more centuries. Therefore, since they deny that prophecy is even possible, all that's left is to declare Daniel a dishonest work that was written after the fact, and then only pretended to be prophetic. Next it is explained that the shaggy goat with one horn, shaggy just means the goat's a male, will have that one big horn broken and four horns are going to replace it. And this means that four kingdoms will arise out of this single nation, which is Greece, and then another king, referring to that little horn, is going to arise. He'll be arrogant, he'll be skillful in getting his way. Now, Verses 23 through 26 now explain verses 9 through 12. So let's go back and read verses 9 through 12. (coughs) 
Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew extremely big in the directions of the south and the east and in the direction of the glory. It grew so great that it reached the army of heaven. It hurled some of the army and the stars to the ground and it trampled on them. Yes, it even considered itself as great as the prince of the army. The regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. Through sin, the army was put in its power along with the regular burnt offering. It flung truth on the ground as it acted and it prospered. So Gabriel says... Verses 23 through 26 are going to explain that. So let's read now verses 23 through 26. In the latter part of their reign, when the evildoers have become as evil as possible, there will arise an arrogant king, skilled in intrigue. And his power will be great, but not with the power the first king had. He will be amazingly destructive. He will succeed in whatever he does. And he will destroy the mighty and the holy ones. He will succeed through craftiness and deceit. He'll become swelled with pride. Destroy many people just when they feel the most secure. He'll even challenge the prince of princes. But without human intervention, he'll be broken. And the vision of the evening and mornings which has been told is true. But you are to keep the vision secret because it's about days in the distant future. This king, this little horn, will succeed in everything he attempts. And he will decimate the holy ones, meaning God's people, Israel. He'll be very powerful. But not as powerful as the original single bighorn of Greece, who was Alexander the Great. He will overcome the Jewish people when they're feeling secure, not suspecting that they're about to be attacked. He will even challenge the prince of princes, which can only mean God, or perhaps, perhaps more specifically, Yeshua HaMashiach. But this arrogant king will be destroyed, yet not by human intervention, but instead by divine decree. And as history proves, Epiphanes didn't die in battle. He wasn't assassinated. He died of a disease. And verse 26 refers back to verse 12 and also to verse 14 about how long these burnt offerings to Jehovah are going to be stopped. That is, verse 26, you see, it's like an oath solemnly sworn by Gabriel that the amount of time that the burnt offerings are going to be stopped will happen just as promised. But that Daniel is to seal up the vision because it's not meant for now. It's meant for a distant time. Now this idea of sealing up is not that the verses are to be kept locked away. It's that when a seal is affixed to something, like the seal you see on this scroll here, when a seal is affixed to something, it means the matter's complete. It's concluded. It's not going to be changed. And it's not going to be tampered with. It's a done deal. Well, chapter 8 concludes with Daniel becoming physically ill. 
from the stress and the anxiety from everything he saw in his vision and by what Gabriel told him. He believed it. But he just couldn't understand it from the sense of comprehending how this could possibly play out. And he couldn't imagine what the circumstances would be, how this was going to come about, that Media Persia would become a world power, that Greece, 200 years later, later would overtake Media Persia. How is this little horn going to be recognized? <clears throat> you know, it's really not that much different than how little we legitimately are able to discern today about the end times about the identification of the Antichrist, about imagining the world political situation that will have to happen to allow the temple to be rebuilt. What exactly will be the catalyst that sets off the war of Armageddon? How will all these celestial catastrophes that Revelation speaks of that devastate the earth, how are they going to occur so prophecy teachers often compensate by filling in the blanks with their opinions, but usually implying that what they say is more reliable than speculation. Well, let's move on to chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read it in just a moment. But chapter 9 consists of two major pieces. As a result of of Daniel contemplating if the 70 year time period of Judah's exile that Jeremiah promised was near its end Daniel began to pray fervently to confess Judah's sins to ask for God's mercy the second major piece starts at verse 20 when the angel Gabriel appeared again to Daniel and gave him the prophecy of the 70 weeks that have been decreed for Daniel's people. So, pick up your Bibles and let's read Daniel chapter 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it begins on page 1111. In the first year of Daryavesh, the son of Akashverosh, a Mede by birth who was made king over the kingdom of the Kasdim. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, was reading the scriptures. And I was thinking about the number of years which Adonai had told Jeremiah the prophet would be the period of Yerushalayim's desolation, 70 years. And I turned to Adonai God to seek an answer pleading with him in prayer, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, and I prayed to Adonai, my God, and I made this confession. Please, Adonai, great and fearsome God, who keeps his covenant, extends grace to those who love him and observes his commandments. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away from your commandments and your rulings. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, to all the people of the land. To you, Adonai, belongs righteousness, but to us today belongs shame. To us, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, including those nearby and far away, throughout all the countries where you've driven them, because they've broke faith with you. Yes, Adonai, shame falls on us, our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, because we sinned against you. 
It is for Adonai our God to show compassion and forgiveness because we rebelled against Him. We didn't listen to the voice of Adonai our God so that we could live by His laws which, we pre- which were presented to us through His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel flouted your Torah turned away, unwilling to listen to your voice. Therefore the curse and the oath written in the Torah of Moses, the servant of God, was poured out on us because we sinned against him. He carried out the threats he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us disaster so great that under all of heaven nothing has been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. As written in the Torah of Moses, this whole disaster came upon us. Yet we did not appease Adonai our God by renouncing our wrongdoing and by discerning your truth. So Adonai watched for the right moment to bring this disaster upon us. For Adonai our God was just in everything he did. Yet we didn't listen when he spoke. Now Adonai our God who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand, thereby winning renown for yourself, as is the case today, we sinned. We acted wickedly. Adonai, in keeping with all your justice, please allow your anger and fury to be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because it's due to our sins, the wrongdoings of our ancestors, that Jerusalem and your people have become the objects of scorn among everyone around us. Therefore, our God, listen to the prayer and pleadings of your servant and cause your face to shine on your desolated sanctuary for your own sake. My God, turn your ear and hear, open your eyes and see how desolated we are, as well as the city which bears your name. For we plead with you, not because of our own righteousness, but because of your compassion. Adonai hear. Adonai forgive. Adonai pay attention. Don't delay action. For your own sake, my God, because your city and your people bear your name. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my own sin and the sin of my people Israel and pleading before Adonai my God for the holy mountain uh, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the beginning, swooped down on me in full flight at about the time of the evening sacrifice. And he explained things to me. And he said, I have come now, Daniel, to enable you to understand this vision clearly. At the beginning of your prayers, an answer was given. And I have come to say what it is because you are greatly loved. Therefore, look into this answer and understand the vision. Seventy weeks has been decreed for your people and for your holy city for putting an end to the transgression, for making an end of sin, for forgiving inequity, for bringing in everlasting justice, for setting the seal on vision and profit, and for anointing the especially holy place. Know therefore and discern that seven weeks will elapse between the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed prince comes. It will remain built for 62 weeks with open spaces and moats, but these will be troubled times. Then after the 62 weeks, Mashiach, Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. The people of a prince yet to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, but his end will come with a flood, 
and desolations are decreed until the war is over. He'll make a strong covenant with leaders for one week. For half of the week, he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. On the wing of detestable things, the desolator will come and continue until the already decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Daryavesh is Darius a man who's been given the former empire of Babylon to govern. Darius is a Mede. And we discussed in earlier lessons that Darius was not the king of the entire Media Persian Empire, only the king over most of what used to constitute the empire of Babylon. In fact, the original Hebrew says that he was um, king of the Kazdim, meaning the Chaldeans. So he had a large territory to govern, but King Cyrus, a Persian, was the real power of the totality of the media Persian Empire and no doubt was above King Darius. This arrangement fulfilled Daniel's chapter 8 prophecy of the ram with the two horns. Both horns were big. One was larger than the other. The ram was the combined Media-Persian empire. The smaller of the two horns was Media, and its king was Darius. The larger was Persia. Its king was Cyrus. Daniel had been a captive in Babylon. Since the first wave of Judeans were taken from Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, decades earlier, around 606 B.C. He was an old man by now. He had lived out his entire adult life in Babylon and in service to Babylon. But now his service was transferred to his new master, the Median king Darius, because Media Media Persia had conquered Babylon. Daniel knew the biblical prophecies well. And he thought that perhaps the time had come to expect the release of his fellow Jews to return to their homeland, mercifully, mercifully, finally bringing an end to their shameful captivity. Listen to Jeremiah 25, 9-11. I'm going to send for all the families of the north, says Adonai, and for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, and bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them, making them an object of horror and ridicule, a perpetual ruin. Moreover, I will silence among them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bridegroom and bride, the grinding of millstones and the light of lamps. The entire land will become a ruin, a waste, and these nations will serve the king of Babel for 70 years. And yet Daniel, you see, he didn't see any signs whatsoever that release was imminent. Nothing was happening that said that the Jews' return to their homeland was at hand. Faith and faith alone was on his side. He believed the prophets. Such was exactly the sense of that wonderful New Testament verse that so many Christians 
have held tightly onto when all else seemed futile and hopeless. Something that we all ought to remember when times are the most troublesome for us. 2 Corinthians 5.7 For we live by trust, not by what we see. Amidst dozens of gods of scores of nations, Daniel now seeks the God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The true God of heaven and earth. He bears his soul in fervent prayer. He exhibits his grief and mourning over the sins of his fellow Jews that had finally caused their God to act in such severity towards them. And he confessed his and his fellow Judeans' unworthiness of receiving heavenly mercy. So from verses 4 through 19 of Daniel chapter 9, we get Daniel's prayer. And we shall discuss that prayer and then that mysterious prophecy of the 70 weeks the next time we meet.